I typically don't preach on the gospel passages on Easter because uh, we've heard them so many times before, but today uh, I've decided to preach on the Matthew text account, uh, the Matthew account of what happened on that first Easter morning. And uh, I believe that there is an important message for us here, uh, one that we may have heard before, but it bears repeating. We're going to look at, uh, as we look through this passage, we're going to look at the evidence to consider, the love to receive, and the mission for life. Uh, first, let's look at the evidence to consider. As um, the account tells us, Mary and Mary went to the tomb on that very first day of the week and found there an angel, uh, a, a um, earthquake-like event where an angel came down and began to speak to them. Their response was to listen, and the response of the guards over the tomb was to act as if they were dead. They were so afraid. And what we want to consider as we look at this account is, is it true? People have debated this throughout the centuries. And of course, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you believe in his resurrection. And if you are not, if you don't believe in the resurrection of Christ, you generally or don't consider yourself to be a Christian. It's, it's the foundation of our faith. And then, so we must ask ourselves, why should we believe? As we consider the evidence, does it prove that he in fact rose from the dead? Uh, the first thing we want to look at is that in every single gospel account, all four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it is women who go to the tomb. It is women who see Jesus first. And we say, well, so? <laughs> well, an early Greek historian who was uh, very much against Christianity um, said, so you can't believe it because women are hysterical. His word's not mine. And of course, we don't believe that today. We, we believe in the credibility of women as witnesses, but back then they didn't. And so if you're going to create a false account, you would not use witnesses who, by their very nature, would call into question the whole thing. So what does that mean to us? It means that this is very likely a true account because you wouldn't make something up. You wouldn't make this up. So uh, to the Greek historian Celsus, we would say, uh, you say that that makes it less believable, but in actual fact, it makes it more believable. It's interesting, too, that there are soldiers at this tomb. Soldiers are there because the authorities heard Jesus say that he would raise up on the third day. Did they believe that Jesus would raise up on the third day? No, nobody believed in a resurrection. In the Jewish um, culture, there may be a resurrection at the last day of everyone all at the same time, but no individual resurrections uh, would occur in, in their worldview. And for the Greeks and the Romans, there was a belief in um, 
the fact that the body is, is the bad part of us. So if you are going to raise your spirit might, but never your body. So no one in this story was inclined to believe that Jesus would rise from the dead. So the soldiers were there not because uh, the authorities actually believed that he would rise, but that his followers would come and steal his body and say that he did. But where are his followers? The women come but to anoint his dead body with no thought that he might have risen from the dead and the men are nowhere to be found. You would think that if you believed that Jesus might rise from the dead, you'd be hanging out at that tomb waiting for him to come out, listening at the stone for any indication of life inside, but none of them did this. A lot of times people will say, well, back then people believed all kinds of things that we don't believe anymore. C.S. Lewis called that uh, chronological snobbery <laughs> with the implication that people back then were dumber than we are today. People back then had just as much intelligence as you do and had just as much reason uh, to believe that this resurrection could not happen. And yet... They saw it. Even those who uh, saw Jesus, his risen, uh, risen Jesus, uh, in, in verse 17, uh, they said they were, it says they worshiped him, but some doubted. Even coming face to face with him, they doubted because this just wasn't done. And yet, these very people that had worship mixed with doubt at this moment went on to live lives of self-sacrifice because they believed they were so sure that this, this resurrection occurred and was true, and they knew that it was their job to share this glorious truth with the world. Other movements, there were other Messianic movements of that time, and every time the Messianic leader died, so did the movement. But Christianity, when Jesus died and rose again, the movement, the Christian faith, exploded. There were more and more believers, and that would not have happened had he not risen from the dead. People would not have been willing to give their lives for what they knew was a lie. They knew this was true, so they lived their lives uh, in light of it being true. So we have evidence to consider, and that evidence points us to the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then the next thing we want to see is the love that is to be received. The angel appears to the Marys and said, go and tell his disciples he is risen. Tell them to meet him in Galilee. And then when Jesus meets the Marys, they fall at his feet. They are amazed and overwhelmed and happy, filled with joy at the ability to see him again, the one who was dead, now alive. They clasped his feet and worshiped him. And Jesus says to them, now go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and I will meet them there. My brothers. Jesus sees the disciples as his brothers. And the disciples had uh, 
abandoned him. Peter had denied him, even though Peter had said that he wouldn't deny him. And it's uh, interesting uh, in Mark's account that Jesus says, go tell the disciples and Peter to meet me. Well, why would he single out Peter as if he's not one of the disciples? Well, probably because Peter may not have thought himself to be worthy of being called a disciple after his denial uh, in light of his shame at abandoning his Lord. The relationship he thought from his side would be broken, but it was not. When Jesus appeared to the disciples, he said to them, peace be with you. Jesus did not hold their failures against them. Jesus, in fact, died so that their relationship could be stronger and eternal. And that is important for us to remember as we face Easter this year. If you are wondering, if you have a bit of doubt mixed in with your faith, don't, don't be too concerned because Jesus loves despite doubt. Jesus loves despite failures. And he calls us to trust him, to trust his love, and then as we trust it, as we allow ourselves to experience it more and more, the doubts fade. So evidence to consider and find to be true, love to receive and find to be fulfilling, find to be the answer to the longings of our hearts, and finally, a mission to live. Jesus says to his disciples down here in verse 18, what is called the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all nations, all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This is the clearest uh, expression of the Trinity, the Godhead uh, that we have in Scripture as Jesus uh, brings them all together, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what does he say that they are to do? They are to baptize people, disciples, into the name, one name, of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons, one name, one entity the mystery of the Trinity. And as we've looked at the Trinity before, we've looked at the idea that the Trinity lives in, uh, in a constant state of, of motion, of love, of, of um, trust and concern. And, and beautiful, the, way, the way we were created to live in relationship. We serve a God who lives in eternal relationship and that God calls us into relationship with him. When, when Jesus says baptizing them into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, what he's saying is when you are baptized into, you have a new identity, you are then included into this love of the Godhead. You have been changed into one who experiences this love now and then forever. And then he says, and teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. And when we hear the word obey, what do we think of? Normally, we think of a list of rules, right? A list of things you better do and a list of things you better not do. 
And you get that list of rules and you say, obey this. Jesus says you better obey this. And many Christians seem to think that that is the calling that we have upon our lives is to tell the rest of the world how they're supposed to behave. But that is not what Jesus says here when we look at what he calls us to obey. First, make disciples. So we, we call people into relationship with God first and then teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And we look through the Gospels for what Jesus commands people to do. There are places where Jesus is very clear about morality and about how we have all failed. But those places point to our failure and our need to be forgiven. But what Jesus actually commands people to do is love your God, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love each other. Love your enemies. Show compassion. Feed the hungry. Clothe the naked. Visit the imprisoned. Care about people. That is what he commands us to do. So the Christian life should be... Um, characterized by a depth of joy because we know who we are in relationship to God, but also of grace, of kindness, of compassion, of mercy, and of love. And if we think that bringing the kids to church or teaching the kids to live good lives is what the church is about, what being a Christian is about, we've gotten it wrong because what being a Christian is about is secondarily about living a good life. But the first primary message, the foundational message of Christianity is that Jesus Christ has suffered, Jesus Christ has died, Jesus Christ has risen so that you can have a relationship with God characterized by God's love. And it is not about behaving well enough in order to be a good person, in order that God may or may not accept you. It is about God's acceptance based in what Jesus Christ has done and uh, assuming, knowing, uh, 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 embracing the new identity that is yours through what Christ has done. That's what we need to be teaching the kids. That's what we need to be proclaiming as the church, this glorious message of redemption, of acceptance of inclusion into the love of God. And because we are included into the love of God, because Jesus Christ raised from the death, raised from death, then what we know is that death has been defeated. Sin has been defeated. So if sin and death are defeated, that means that we do not have to then eternally die but we eternally live. And this is the message that we are to proclaim. This is the mission that we are to live, is to invite people into this eternal kingdom in which death has been defeated. I'm going to share <laughs> a little bit more um, vulnerably than maybe I, I often do, but... Uh, if you're on Facebook and you've noticed, you may you may know that uh, we lost our dog, and I preached on a few, 
mentioned it in a sermon a few weeks ago, uh, back in January. We have a new dog. She's awesome, but I still miss that other one. And soon after she died, we uh, got uh, uh, something in the mail, a cartoon of um, a dog and a person and a rainbow between them. And the idea was that when you cross, when I cross the rainbow bridge, Andy will be there to greet me. Now, that is not based in biblical theology. It is not, uh, maybe not in any way true, but the feeling that that gave me of being reunited with her was deeply, deeply moving. And I think that feeling uh, captures something in what it means to have death be defeated. And in eternity, uh, death will have no more power or sway over us. And it will be as if, as uh, Sam Ganji says in uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, everything sad will have come untrue. All the longings of our hearts, that feeling of reuniting And many of you have suffered recently far greater losses than I have. And the idea of reuniting with those loved ones and and, and being at the point in which death no longer has any sway, any authority, any power. All the longings, the deep longings of our hearts will be fulfilled in that glorious kingdom. And it's not like an extension of life, but a whole recreation of life so that all the wonderful things we enjoy here, dinner parties and and campfires and whatever else it might be, we continue to enjoy because God is creating a new heaven and a new earth. All the wonderful joys of earth will continue, but in a different way quality, a greater quality. The the deepest joys we have will be magnified and there will be no suffering, no pain. The poor will be poor no more. The sick will be sick no more. Broken relationships will be broken no more. And this deep confidence of knowing the truth of our eternal destiny, this deep confidence was what allowed the the apostles, the disciples, to, to share the message of the gospel with great boldness after seeing that Jesus Christ is alive and Jesus Christ has invited them into relation, eternal relationship with God. That depth of confidence is ours too. The disciples demonstrated their security, their peace from the inside out. (laughs) Oh, so many things promise us a sense of peace, a sense of satisfaction, and we, we, we strive after those things, but they are from the outside in, and they never, they never work in any lasting way. There might be a momentary sense, but it doesn't last. But the peace that is ours, the confidence that is ours deep within is not based on what is outside, but what is what has been placed inside of us by the Holy Spirit because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Friends, believe the evidence, receive the love. And then you'll naturally want to be on mission 
on mission to share with others the glorious news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and what it means for us.